And good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. Man, we're glad you're here this morning. How many of you feel like this is kind of the end of our official spring break? How many feel like we need another week to recover from spring break right now? Man, this week has felt like it's seemed like all year long it's been kind of going fast, but this week seemed like it flew by a lot of activity. If you drive down some of the major roads in Polk County, it feels like everybody in the country is, is, in, our, is our, in our county right now. So uh, kind of good to see Spring Break pass as much as we love it. And we're really glad you're here as we are in week three of a series we've called Let's Take a Walk, where we're literally just, just taking a walk through the Old Testament as Jesus did actually the day of his resurrection. Uh, he is actually encounters two men on the road to Emmaus, and, and they're taking a walk, and they're talking about the events of the day, not even sure that Jesus is actually alive at that point. Uh, they've heard rumors, they've heard stories, and, and it says that Jesus put up alongside of them, and, and he has this conversation with them, and he begins, he says, he begins with Moses and the prophets, we'll dig more into that next week, but he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he goes throughout the whole Old Testament showing the, the fact that he was always there, and, and sometimes I think we miss that, especially being in a New Testament church, we miss the idea that the Old Testament is meant to point the way to Jesus. And the whole purpose of the Old Testament was to show uh, the, the need of redemption and that redemption was going to come in the Messiah who was to be the New Testament. Now, going back to week one, we, we said this. We kind of built up this why this is a big deal and why this is important. And, and we said really, and we see this as a culture. Uh, maybe if you, if you grew up in a, in a different area, you know that, uh, that throughout the last couple of decades in American culture that people are kind of drifting away from the church. And, and one of the arguments we made at the very beginning is a lot of times we drift away from the church when we have this, this kind of smaller view of Jesus and the smaller view of God. And, and, and the bigger that becomes, the more the grace of Jesus abounds in our life, the more it makes a difference in our life, the more he starts to make an impact in specific areas of our life. And we, we said this is why, why this is such a big deal. This is why this is important. Uh, we said in week one that it's a big deal because when, we, when I get a bigger picture of who Jesus is, it makes me more consistent in my faith. I, w- I want to grow. I want to be challenged. I want to be encouraged and equipped. Uh, I want to be consistent in my growth. I want to be a part of what God's doing in the church. And my, my, my growth becomes much more consistent as my view of Jesus becomes larger. Week two, we talked about this idea that as we try to make it practical, we said the bigger our view is of Jesus, the more we want that grace to encounter other people's lives. Uh, if it's someone that I'm not even that familiar with, and I encounter Jesus and I have this big picture of who Jesus is, it makes me want to say, man, I want you to have just as big a picture of Jesus because I know that he impacted my life. And if he impacted my life in a profound way, I want to be able to share that with you as well. Week three, and this final one we're going to talk about in this practical application of this, but week three I want to talk about something real quick as we kind of kick this thing off. And we're kind of hitting the ground running this morning. But also, when it comes to when I get a bigger picture of who Jesus is, and I start to talk about my, my service within the church, it changes the way I do that service. It changes kind of my, my, my mindset, my, as, the way that I approach it. Because as I get a bigger picture of, of who Jesus is, I realize that the role that I play within the church, whatever that role is, the role that I play within the church, that number one, God has equipped me to be able to fulfill that ro- role, and that role is a big picture of what God is trying to do for his kingdom. And so if, if right now maybe you're working in an area like over in, in RPC Kids and, and you're there on a consistent basis, maybe you work there weekly or, or every other week or whatever the case may be. And, and, and sometimes I know because sometimes it seems like whatever work we do can get a little bit monotonous, especially if we get away from the purpose of why we do it. 
Uh, there's some jobs around the church that just have to get done, and no one really likes to do that. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had our, our Fight Club and Fight Club Pink happening here in the, in the auditorium, and so we had to stack all the chairs against the wall and, and then have to reset the chairs back up. And that's not glamorous work. Like, no one is the one that wants, no one loves to do that type of thing. But we realize when we get a bigger picture, it changes how we approach ministry to I have to do something, because a lot of times we approach things and say, well, this is my responsibility, I have to do it. And our mindset changes to, no, it's not that I have to do this, it's I get to do this. On a weekly basis, I get to be a part of God's kingdom and what he's doing. And, and so when we approach working with children, if we approach it, because and, and, sometimes people use the, the mindset, and we don't ever want it to be this way. Uh, we've heard people in the past use the term like, oh, I babysit on Sunday mornings. Listen, you don't babysit. That's not what we do. We're making an eternal investment in children's lives. We're not just there to watch them. We're there to teach them because we have this big picture of who Jesus is. And if we have this big picture of who Jesus is, we want everyone to encounter Jesus in the same way. And so it's not just rocking a baby. It's, man, I want to make an eternal investment that this child, because at a young age, we realize they're grasping so much truth. So at a young age, I want to be able to share the truth of who Jesus is because I want to make an eternal investment in their lives. Dealing with students in a youth group, the same thing. I want to make an eternal investment in students' lives. When we start to come into the service and we have people volunteering in the booth and, and we say, man, I want to create environments that people can experience God for themselves. It's not just flipping on lights off and on. It's not just making sure the sliders on the soundboard are working accurately. It's saying, I want to be part of a group of people that, allows, that allow everybody else to experience God in the service. A guest service person, I, I want to be able to greet someone in a way that they recognize, man, that, that God could be doing something in their life this morning. A small group leader, whatever it is, it changes our mindset. And I say, now it's not that I have to do these things. So we have this, this tool that we use to, to schedule our volunteers. And, and, and I, I get a reminder on my phone whenever I'm scheduled for something. I get a text message or an email and it says, don't forget you've been scheduled for that. And if, if we view our tasks as just kind of the monotony that I go through, I get that reminder. I'm like, oh, that's right. I got to do that this week. And instead, if I, if I say, no, my responsibility, I man, I consider it a privilege that I get to get up on a weekly basis and, and talk about the grace and the truth of Jesus. And, and whatever it is, our role that we play, God has equipped all of us very differently. But my approach is not that I have to do this. But man, I get to do this. That I've encountered this large picture of who Jesus is. And once I encountered him, I want an everyday reminder of that grace and truth in my life. I want an everyday reminder of, of how big he is. And once I get that picture, then it makes me want to make sure that, that my growth is consistent. That I'm encountering people on a regular basis and saying, hey, I want to let you know how good Jesus is. And then when I get a chance to serve on a regular basis that I long for and I look forward to those opportunities to serve and to make an eternal debt on people's lives. With that being said, go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus chapter 12. We're going to get into our week three uh, content. If, if, if you're kind of in the midst of that, as you turn to Exodus 12, uh, if you're kind of in the midst of that, say, well, I don't really have a, a place to serve. I don't have a place to get plugged in. Listen, there are plenty of great opportunities to be able to do that. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the service. But but uh, the chance we have, the privilege we have to say, how can I get plugged in? How can I serve? It's a unique privilege. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to get into week three of this idea of, of let's take a walk and get the content of this. 
When we mention Jesus in the Old Testament, there's a couple of ways that we can actually encounter the Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the first one, we talked about this a little bit last week, and it'll come up again in a couple of weeks. But, but, but the first is actually encounter Jesus himself, whether uh, physically or not physically, but he's just kind of there. And we talked about last week Jesus in creation. And there are times that we encounter Jesus himself in the Old Testament. Uh, it's going to become a little more meaningful in a couple of weeks. But the other way we encounter Jesus in the Old Testament is through what we call types. Types of Christ. And when we say types, it's, it's not the same thing as saying he's a kind of Christ. It's not it at all. There's actually a study called typology. And typology in the Old Testament is, is looking at different people or different events or different stories and saying through those stories, through those people, there was some sort of symbolic representation of Jesus in the New Testament. And so these great uh, thinkers, these great theologians have gone back and said, oh, I can see that in, what, in the story that God was revealing here, that he was revealing a central truth that we come to discover about who Jesus is. So this idea of, of types of Christ is a little bit different, but it's something that's talked about qu- quite a bit in kind of when, when pastors get together and stuff like that. And, and types of Christ are these representations of who Jesus is. And there's two types of Christ um, when we talk about typology. Number one is a person in the Old Testament who behaves in a way that his actions or character is similar to Jesus in the New Testament. So the first type of Christ, the first example of, of Jesus in the Old Testament is a person in the Old Testament uh, who behaves in a way that his action or character is similar to Jesus in the New Testament. You can look at different, and it's not that they're an exact representation. They're not. They're human beings. They all fall short. But it's where we can see maybe a characteristic or, or, or an, an action that they have where, okay, I can see through that that God was trying to reveal a truth about his son through a particular person. We can see that over and over and over again in different people. Uh, for instance, if you pull out Jonah, see some of the typology in Jonah, we can see the physical similarities between what happened with Jonah and what happened with Jesus. Uh, number two, and it's not a person, the second type of, of Christ is an object. And this is where we're going to go this morning. But it's an object or event in the Old Testament that can be viewed as representative of some quality of Jesus. This is where we're going to go this morning. The type of Christ we look at this morning is an object or event in the Old Testament that can be viewed as representative of some quality of Jesus. Now, now, when we talk about typology, the study of typology is actually a study of the Old Testament and these representations of Jesus. But to give a more modern-day parallel, uh, how many either read the book or watched the movie about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and saw Aslan and saw the representation? Aslan would be a modern-day version of that. If you ever watched that through the lens of Scripture, we can see that obviously that's a reference to who Jesus is. And so typology works that way. It's not that he actually is Jesus, but it's a representation to show us this, this bigger picture so that when I approach Jesus, I have a deeper appreciation for who he is. And so the study is meant to bring about some of these ideas to give us this bigger picture, to give us this, this bigger appreciation. So today we're going to look at the second of the types of Christ. In particular, we are going to be looking at Jesus as the Passover lamb. Jesus throughout the New Testament is referred to as, as a lamb of God. And, and they're different, and some of the parallels won't exactly match up this morning. But we're going to look at, in particular, Exodus chapter 12 and the story of the Passover lamb. Now, to give a little bit of the backstory before we get there, 
in, in, in Exodus, throughout the book of Exodus, we see the, the children of Israel being led away from their bondage in, in Egypt. And basically what has happened is Moses has come to the Pharaoh and said, you have to let my people go. And Pharaoh's response in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? So Pharaoh is stubborn, he's hard-hearted, he's against the plan of God. And so Moses comes, and this is part of Moses' concern early on, is I'm not a good speaker, who am I to go up against Pharaoh? And, and God sends Moses, and Moses speaks to Pharaoh, and, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is God? I'm not going to just let him go. And, and so Moses starts to introduce these, these series of, of plagues. And if you grew up at all, uh, going to church at all, you've heard all about these ten plagues. And, and if you grew up like I did, they had these flannel graphs. Who remembers flannel graphs? Man, they had flannel graphs. And here's the crazy thing. They had like these, these felt uh, things. I remember being in, in a school and, and, and this, this old teacher teaching us and having these flannel graphs up there. And I always wondered, like, how do you depict some of these plagues? Like, these were harsh things that God was a part of. And I'm like, how do you deplay, depict, especially what we're going to talk about today? Uh, but they tell these stories. And we hear these stories over and over. And we hear stories like how, how there comes and there's, there's, there's these plagues. And the plagues include things like... Uh, there, there's the, the Nile River turning to blood, there's frogs, there's lice, there's flies, there's boils, there's locusts, there's hail, there's three days of darkness. And, and throughout all of that, Pharaoh was proving stubborn. Either he said, I'm not going to give in, or I'm going to give in, and then goes back on his word. And, and throughout all of that, Pharaoh saying, no, I'm not going to let the children of Israel go. And so that's what we pick up with this final plague in Exodus chapter 12. And it's interesting, there's a lot that we're going to look at as, as we kind of uh, bite off a huge, uh, not just a huge section of scripture, but a huge idea here. Because what's taking place is we're going to draw a parallel between Exodus 12 and Jesus in the New Testament. But also as we read through Exodus 12, there's a physical Passover that we're going to talk about that's taking place. But they're also instituting a celebration that they're going to have as the nation of Israel behind the deliverance that God brings. And so three things we're going to look at. Number one, as we look at this idea of Jesus as the Passover lamb, three things we're going to learn about that are direct parallels between the Passover lamb of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament. Number one is this. The Passover lamb had to be spotless. The Passover lamb itself had to be spotless. Let's pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. It says this, by the way, the scripture for this part is going to be Exodus 12, verses 1 through 6. It says, The Lord said to Moses and his brother Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel, let's tell all the Israelites, that on the, tw- on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house as a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. Um, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be, watch this, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Uh, the final judgment that's coming is, is that he's going he's gonna to kill all the firstborn in, of the sons and the children of uh, the people in Egypt. But he says, we're going to pass over the ones who've killed this lamb and put the, the blood on, on, on the door. And, and, and because of that, he says, we're, we're going to do this. The Passover is going to come. But as you prepare that Passover lamb, this is really, really important. As you prepare that Passover lamb, it said a little bit earlier, that lamb shall be, in verse 5, shall be without, without blemish. 
that lamb had to be spotless. And so as they're preparing for this, this sacrifice, as they're preparing for the Passover, it was an essential for them. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system is developed be, behind the idea that the animal used in sacrifice had to be without blemish. We compare that to the New Testament example of who Jesus is. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 18 and 19, it says this. Knowing that you were ransomed... From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or without blemish or spot. So we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, in particular, we look at the Passover lamb, and we realize that this celebration, this deliverance that was going to come to the Passover lamb, was going to come through an animal that had to be without spot or blemish. Now we transition into the New Testament. As we get into the New Testament, we, we see that the idea that we are bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. You see, you and I, we, we know that we make mistakes. In fact, if, if you're like me, and I have a feeling a lot of us are very much alike, we make mistakes on a consistent basis. And it's because of those mistakes on a consistent basis that ultimately that Jesus had to die. Now, if, if Jesus was, was a really good person, and maybe you could die one person for one person, but Jesus comes as, as the Son of God. He comes as God himself, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And so because of that, his sacrifice on our behalf, was so powerful because he came without spot or blemish. He lived this sinless life. And that's crazy because we read the accounts in the New Testament of who Jesus was, and, and even early on in his ministry, Jesus lived for, for 30 years, and he grew up, and he went to school just like we went to school, and he learned just like we learned, even though he was God. He did all of those things. But his 30th year, he enters ministry, and he enters ministry by going into a season where he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. And yet, despite the temptation, he answers each of those temptations with Scripture, and he's proven to be without sin. Which was essential because as Jesus came as the Lamb of God, it was said about him in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that's, that's we've been ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I can't buy my ransom. I don't, I don't deserve that privilege. He says, you've not been ransomed with, with these perishable things because those things, they come and they go and, and they're not here permanently. But you and I, we've been rescued. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed by the precious blood of the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. Number one, the Passover lamb had to be spotless. Number two, the blood of the lamb allowed for that house to be passed over. Picking up in verse 7, it says this. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and, on, on, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat with it your belt fastened, your sandals in your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Let's pause on that for just a second. We're going to continue on. 
But, but it's interesting, if, if you were here a couple of years ago, we actually have, right around Easter, they celebrate Passover about the same time, around Easter we actually had a, a Jewish rabbi came in and, and he led us in a Passover meal. And as he led us in that Passover meal, he walked through some of the symbolism because God's giving very, very detailed information on here's how we're going to celebrate the Passover. Because for them, it wasn't just going to be the deliverance coming here in Exodus chapter 12, but ultimately we're going to celebrate this as a celebration for the remainder of our years. We're going to continue to have this as a festival. So he's given specific instruction about what what they're supposed to do in this specific situation, but also from that point on, this is what they're supposed to do. And, and, And literally to this day, all of the things that we talk about in detail, all the things we talk about, the Jewish people, even the Messianic Jewish people who believe in Jesus, continue to celebrate Passover in the very same way. And in particular, this part, it says, in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Now for them, deliverance was about to come. For them, deliverance was, was, was at their doorstep. They'd been longing, they'd been praying. Moses had come, and there's all these, these different, uh, the, the different plagues that were coming. And deliverance hadn't come yet. And so in the back of their mind, they might have been thinking, well, maybe this isn't, this isn't actually going to take place. But they said, as you celebrate the Passover, this particular time, Know that as you eat this, this, this meal, as you take up this meal, know that you want to take up this meal with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Why? Because they had to be ready to go. Like this was it. Deliverance was, was coming. For them, they knew, man, this, this, is, this is our opportunity. This is what we've been longing for. Our deliverance today looks very, very different And I want to stop and just focus on this a second. We'll pick up back in in verse 11 in just a second. But I want to pick up and focus on this for a second. Because for some of us this morning, we need deliverance. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what the thing is right now in your life that that is holding you back. But there are some of us right now that we need deliverance from something. Maybe it's a, 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 something that's been plaguing us, some sort of addiction that, that we've been holding on to that we can't let go. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's just like our own self-doubting and, and fear in our life. Whatever it is, there's, there's something that, that can be holding us back. Maybe it's a, a friend or, or a relative or something that we're going through. And, and we know, man, what I need is I, I need deliverance. And, and even sometimes when we get more spiritual, we start to, to pray for deliverance to take place. We're like, man, I just, I just long for, I want to be delivered from, from that doubt. I want to be delivered from, from that, that addiction. I want to be delivered from, from, from that angry relative or, or, or the stuff that I'm going through or, or, or whatever it is. I want to be delivered from that. And, and when we get spiritual, we start to pray about those things. But we don't pray as if we believe deliverance is here right now. Like deliverance is a possibility. And so when God has given the command here, he says, I want you to, to have this celebration, but I want you to have the celebration with the preparation in mind that deliverance is, is here. Deliverance is, is present. Listen, church, this morning, if, if, if we're believers, if we're genuine believers, the Bible says we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And that means we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in doubt thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get past this obstacle in my life. We have the Spirit of God in our life that wants to bring deliverance from whatever it is that's holding us back. 
And so we go in praying expectantly, saying, God, I believe that you're going to bring deliverance in this specific arena of my life. And as I pray, as I want deliverance, I want to go into it with my belt fastened, with my shoes on, with my staff in my hand, saying, I know, God, when you bring deliverance, I want to be prepared to run from that as fast as I can, because that's no longer who I am. That's no longer the way that you made me. And so I want to come with deliverance as a possibility. I want to come prepared right now that when deliverance comes, I'm ready. For the children of Israel, they'd heard these stories over and over. Now, I think they genuinely believed that God might deliver them. But at some point, as was their history throughout the Old Testament, they had become cynical and they had become just, hey, all right, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Are we going to trust God in this situation? Because that was just kind of their nature. But God says, no, when you celebrate this, and in particular when God passes over uh, their particular household, I want you to celebrate this prepared to go, prepared to know that that deliverance is at hand. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. This is the judgment coming of God. This is, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he says that I'm about to strike the land, and the firstborns are going to be killed. But as long as you offer the sacrifice, I'm going to pass over. That, that lamb is going to bring the Passover to those particular households. So number one is the Passover lamb had to be spotless. Number two is the blood of the lamb allowed for that house to be passed over. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, it says this. For the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctified, that means to, to cleanse, for the purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now here's the thing, is as we read this, we know that in the Old Testament they took sacrifice serious. And they made sure the sacrifice was just right and the animals were prepared just right. And, and even later on, what we read here in the Passover is after the sacrifice was made, the animal had to be prepared and served just right. All these things had to be done just right. And each of those sacrifices was temporary. They had to do these over and over. When they did the Passover, when they do the Day of Atonement, all of these sacrifices had to be done over and over because even though those sacrifices were, were, were pure, in terms of they were, they, they were lambs without spot or blemish, they were impure and they weren't perfect. They weren't the, the lamb of God himself. But what we just read here in the book of Hebrews is that when Jesus was offered, his, the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our sacrifice that Jesus had for us was once for all. He was sacrificed one time for us for the remainder of our lives that all it takes is true faith in him and that sacrifice, which is similar, but is the completion of the Old Testament sacrificial system, serves as that sacrifice for us once and for all. Number three, ultimately it's through the Passover that deliverance comes. 
There's more instruction. We won't take time to read all of this. There's more instructions on this chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. But I want to pick up in verse 21. It says this, And Moses called the elders of, the Israel, of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out to the door and house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when, you say, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Watch this response. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. Ultimately, it's through the Passover that deliverance itself comes. And they realized that. They said, we've been longing for this. And it's through this longing, through this Passover, he says, prepare everything. And when the moment comes, the Passover is going to take place. And from here on, from now on, every time you talk about this, and every time your children talk about it, I want this to be a reminder of how great God is, and that it's through God that deliverance comes. Hebrews Chapter 9, a little bit further from what we read just a little while ago, it says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I remember a while back, and I might have shared this story before, but I remember a while back, I was a student at University of Florida. And um, I was a journalism major, and I was, I was kind of new to, to church uh, I, I kind of gone when I was younger and started going again when I was uh, around college age and, and, and just kind of getting back into church. And I was unfamiliar with a lot of the, these things. And, and I remember I was assigned in, in a journalism school at the University of Florida. I was assigned an article, which is really cool because I was getting kind of plugged back into church. And, and I was assigned this article where uh, I, was, I was supposed to go and interview different churches in our area because a lot of the, the hymnals of, of that day, and this is 15 years ago, but a lot of the hymnals were removing any reference to, to blood and all that. They said it's too much for the kids or whatever. And we're removing the blood from the hymnals. And it created this huge controversy. And it created this huge controversy because what Hebrews just said is that if it hadn't been for the shedding of blood, if it hadn't been for the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins wouldn't be possible. Like we read some of these things, we read the Old Testament sacrificial system, and, and you know, I for one am glad I don't live in that era anymore. Because I would, I, having to kill the animal just right, having to make sure everything was done just right, like there were a lot of details, and if they didn't handle the details just right, then the sacrifice wasn't good. But Jesus comes as that spotless lamb sacrificed once and for all, and if it hadn't been for the shedding of his blood, there'd be no forgiveness of sins. And it says, thus it was necessary, watch this, this is why we're doing this series. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with sacrifices better than these. All of these, these types that we talk about, and this is kind of a deeper conversation this morning, but all these types that we talk about are simply a, a small copy of the greater sacrifice that's going to come in Jesus. 
And she says, he's talking about these ideas, these copies. And he says, uh, these copies of the heavenly things be purified with these rites. Heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is the point. The Old Testament sacrificial system, we've been talking about the Passover and, and the celebration of the Passover. They also have a day of atonement where, where the sins of the people are, are ultimately atoned for. And then it was, it was walking into the, the physical temple, into the holy place, and into the holy of holies. And only the high priest could do that. And they had to offer all these sacrifices just right. And even then, it was only a temporary offering that only got them through for the next year. And they'd all walk into these walls made of human hands. And that's why it says, now Christ has entered not in the holy places made with hands, not in the temple made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But Christ has gone into heaven himself, now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as we talk about as The high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we see this this permanent sacrifice. We see Jesus coming as ultimately the ultimate sacrifice. And it's through his being the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb being a small sample, or even the the Day of Atonement, the offering made on the Day of Atonement, being a small sample that 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 was happened one time and was a a human offering, the blood of 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 a lamb or a sacrifice. And he says when Jesus came, he came once for all. He offered his own blood to be spilled out for the forgiveness of our sins. So I look at that and I say, man, it's, it's crazy how... All of this comes together. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system that was temporary and had to be repeated over and over and over again with blood being spilled out for the forgiveness of their sins. And if it wasn't done right, it wasn't accepted. Jesus comes. The Creator Himself comes and says, I want to redeem mankind now. And as I come, I'm going to offer myself up no longer is it going to be contingent upon people to get things right and to make sure that we do this right and we offer this right and the blood is spilled out in just the right way. No longer is that necessary. See, here's the thing about the high priest. When he entered into the temple, when he entered into what is called the Holy of Holies in the temple, he would only enter that day, into that place one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to walk around with, with a bell on his ankle because he had to offer the sacrifice just right. And if he messed up at all, the Bible says that God would strike him dead. And nobody else could enter into that holy of holies. And so they do is they'd have a bell on his ankle, and he'd walk around the holy of holies. He'd offer up a sacrifice, and the sacrifice wasn't done just right. He was struck dead. Well, there's people just outside the holy of holies that are listening. And they're kind of listening, saying, okay, is is the bell still moving? Do we still hear the high priest back in there? And if the bell stops moving, they have a rope tied to him. And they give him a little bit of a tug. They say, hey, are you still with us? And if not, because no one else could enter into the Holy of Holies, they'd have to drag him out. And so there was this complicated system in the Old Testament saying we have to make sure sacrifice is done just right and, and make sure that the atonement is, is done just right. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to provide an end 
to the temporary sacrificial system. No longer is that going to be necessary. Because I come not with temporary deliverance, but I come with a permanency to my deliverance. No longer are you going to have to rely upon yourself to do any of this stuff. I'm going to do it for you. Because Jesus came to be the permanent solution to our temporary issues. In the Old Testament, they needed deliverance. Today, you and I, we still need deliverance. Some, it's those sins that so easily kind of tear us apart. Some, it's doubt. Some, it's insecurity. Some, it's frustration. Uh, Some, it's, man, we're angry drivers and we need to get over it. But Jesus comes to bring us a permanent deliverance from our temporary issues. I don't know what that is for each one of us individually. I don't. But I do know this. When it comes to the permanent deliverance that he comes, that ultimately for every one of us this one thing is true, that we all before Jesus were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Like without Jesus, we had no hope at all. But Jesus came to give a sacrifice that we could have a personal relationship with God through him. That his sacrifice, that was ultimately, though he brings deliverance from those other things, ultimately the remedy he was coming to bring was to bring deliverance from our sin, deliverance from our past. Say, no longer do you have to live there any longer, but I'm coming to give my life as a ransom for you. Not with silver or gold. A ransom was so much more valuable than that. The blood of Jesus shed for us. For the forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, that's the reason why we exist as a church, is to celebrate that, that Jesus would give his life to bring deliverance from our sins. Let's pray together. God, first, I want to just thank you that you'd send your son here to earth to live a sinless life and yet to die a very cruel death on our behalf. God, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that you show us. God, as we gather here, I don't know what the condition of anybody's hearts here at all. I can't see that. And so, God, I would pray this morning, if there's someone who's never found deliverance, the Bible says that judgment is real, that it's there, that it could happen. But because of the blood of Jesus, you're able to pass over us the, the, the punishment that we deserve to bring deliverance. And so, God, my prayer this morning is if there's one or two or five that have never given uh, their life to Jesus, if they've never called upon Jesus, the Passover lamb of, of their life, God, that you'd bring deliverance into their lives right now. God, that you'd bring ministry to their life right now. God, that your spirit would, would start to convict them of their sin and, and start to, to show them their need to call upon Jesus as their Savior. God, if there's one or two or five, I pray that today would be the day, that now would be the very moment of their salvation. God, they would leave here without getting that thing right. Because it also says in the book of Hebrews that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes judgment. And God, that's not our desire for anybody this morning. So God, if, if there's someone who needs to make that decision, I pray that again, today, even right now, is the moment of that decision. God, for others, deliverance might have to come in a variety of ways. God, I pray that in those moments, we, we plead the blood of Jesus over us. God, that we know that through that, there's forgiveness of our sins. Through that, there's an end to our past catching up with us. 
No longer are we bound to those sins because his blood has brought genuine and ultimate deliverance. God, we thank you for that. Bring deliverance to our midst now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.